This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we understand the importance of the Chernobyl nuclear plant with Professor Lydia Zablotska, an expert in radiation and epidemiology. What is Russia doing with the plant when they occupied it? They went into contaminated areas. What are the dangers of being near it? And what did they take with them now that they've left? How can all this be prevented for another nuclear disaster in Ukraine and other places? We learned this uh, with Lydia. It's amazing. Could thousands of lives have been saved with the Titanic? Author William Hazelgrove helps us understand the story of the Titanic myths about the Titanic and how many more people could have been saved. Pretty cool stuff. Plus, are you okay with mayors and more? This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with... It's a little segment where you can contribute to 877-399-9898 because we want to know, are you okay with these topics? Some of these topics are questionable, kind of like this show. So sometimes we, uh, you know, we need to uh, we need to get your thoughts, and that's why we do it. Are you okay with haunted houses? Ooh. Yeah, I, I didn't used to be. When I was a kid, there, there's this very small amusement park just outside Calgary called Callaway Park, and mm. they had this little haunted house that was inspired by like the Flintstones, I think, or something like that. And when I was a kid, that dreaded attraction terrified me like i was haunted by it and then i can vividly remember i went back to callaway park for the first time in probably 10 years when i was in high school and i looked at it you know square in the eyes because this house had eyes i was like i'm going in i'm gonna defeat you finally i walk in it was it was nothing (laughs) it was nothing at all but it was still kind of fun and now i like go into the haunted house attractions especially the ones that have the actors and stuff. I think it's neat. Yeah. It's fun. Oh, really? The, you like the jump out scare? Well, I don't like Boo. this jump scare, but I, I went to one where you walked into this room and it was a big room and there was like, you know, fake blood splatters on the wall and you could tell that there was something about to happen. And then you heard a chainsaw behind you and you look and there was a guy running down the hallway with the chainsaw. Uh, at first I was like, that's amazing. And then I went, Oh, I should run. <laughs> and <laughs> you run and the door shuts behind you. I love that kind of immersion. It's fun. Really? Did I ever tell you that the, um, my, my scariest recurring dream ever in my life, the one that I would always have to the point where I had it so often, I would even cognitively go, Oh, it's the dream. In my dream? Oh, no. Yeah, that's how often it would dream? happen. In my dream, in the dream, I could, I got to the point where it scared me so much that cognitive, and I couldn't get out of it. Oh, man. I cognitively became aware that it was the dream. And that was the only way that I could end it. Even after I became aware of it, I would just, I could leave the house in the dream. It was like this endless cycle. So it was this giant haunted house. And it was it was kind of like cold, rainy winter. Brennan Kelly, remember like winter when you lived in St. Catharines down on the peninsula? It was like that wet, rotting leaves smell, nothing on the trees, almost zero, kind of like November in Niagara. Yeah, I was going to say November. Sounds yeah, like late November, November Niagara. It, it's like um, everything's wet and thick. Like the leaves aren't crunchy anymore. They're now thick, right? Because like, they're muddy thick. And that was what my dream was. So in, in this dream, it was this giant mansion, but it was more like, it was more like, um, an apartment building because there was people that lived in different rooms. And I remember that people would move in and, and, uh, they would rent a room in my dream and then things would happen. And, and I became so aware of, of the demons in this house 
that I recognized them, but they gave me the shivers. And so these people, like nobody died in the haunted house, but people really got scared. And it was the kind of thing where you would open a panel and, um, and there would be like a false wall and there'd be like old hidden wallpaper in behind it kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Geez. Oh no. Like I remember like all the detail. Ride it Disney was World. stone. It was, it was like stone, like stone castle kind of house with stone stairs out the back. And there was like a cellar out the back. And I don't ever remember seeing the front of it, only the back of it in the backyard. And, um, yeah, so it was a recurring dream about a haunted house. And that, yeah, so to your, your question about are you okay with haunted houses, I think I'm okay with them because I like, I have this deep soulful connection to castles. So I don't right. know. I don't know. I, I love them. They scare me. If you ever have a ton of disposable income laying around, you should get some Jungian dream analysis on that. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. What would I find, do you think? I don't know. Don't analyze you me now. Do you remember such detail from it, for one? So that's yeah. always good for, yeah. for Jungian dream detail. analysis. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's typical, actually. There's a lot of common threads that run through a lot of people's dreams, usually like dying leaves and things like that and demons mm. and things. You know, it's just, just part of the darker side your psyche do i owe you like 180 bucks now or yeah something? yeah you're on the clock here <laughs> all right um my psychologist says to me because i ask her about dreams often because dream my dreams are often filled with conflict it's really weird and she says that like sometimes i'll wake up in the morning and uh, this is by the way welcome to the shane shares everything about his life show um <laughs> so i went to my psychologist no i do i see a psychologist regularly she's awesome i recommend it um and i recently had asked her about dreams and she's explained to me that in the the brain study of the brain you know they don't know much about dreams they just know that um it's usually your brain process in the last three days that's that's the way that she described it to me and so um i don't know what that means because you know those some of those dreams are messed up like you're getting chased through a field you know by a giant toothbrush and you know, like that kind of thing, like it's really weird. So sure I don't I saw know that how on the Simpsons. No, oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, you know, so these are these are the kind of things that that you know that we dream about. I'm curious. I'm, I can't be the only one who dreams about weird stuff like that. Please tell me that I'm not the only one. <laughs> no, I don't dream often. But if I do dream, they tend to be very vivid. I dreamt that like Laura, I had to fight for Laura like Laura was going to leave me it was so vivid and so funny and like Laura's parents in the dream were like no we approve of Laura's decision and then when I saw them I was like you guys still like me right like it just oh, no. bled into my real life because it was so real but I don't tend to dream that often well let's do I some bad yeah, dream say, analysis no. yeah Brendan you need to analyze this dream <laughs> yeah okay hit me all right no, what, no. what's going wrong Fear of abandonment. Yeah, I mean that's pretty self-explanatory. That's an easy yeah. one. Yeah, hundred eighty bucks yeah. over here. I'll take an e-transfer. Acceptance issues. Yeah, mm -hmm. an e-transfer. <laughs> Canadian tire money. How about that? Um, but it is fascinating. I my dreams are incredibly vivid all the time. Like it's like I live two lives. I go to sleep. I go to sleep at night, and I go to this whole other world, and I don't always remember it, but I always remember it. it's just vivid. And then I wake up in the morning, and then I have coffee <laughs> and then the day begins so it's like living two lives it's cool anyway uh that's not why we're here but thanks for hearing me out um are you okay with the haunted houses have you ever been in a haunted house that was so scary that you thought the spooky things were actually real i don't like the jump scare halloween murder house type things no -uh, that for me cannot do it will not do it um this kind of what happened to a south carolina man who shot a haunted house worker uh, after he was spooked, 
I have questions about that. We have good news, though. The worker is alive, and it all happened where? In Florida. What does it mean to be from Florida? Florida. Straight drip. Myrtle Beach police say 39-year-old Keel Latrell Brown was visiting the Hollywood Wax Museum haunted house on Saturday with several others when the group was frightened by a performer. One person fell down. In the scramble, a gun slid across the floor and hit Brown in the foot. Investigators say Brown, thinking the gun was a prop, picked it up and fired it. They also say that one of Brown's children told Brown the gun was real but Brown still allowed his 15-year-old son to keep it. Brown is charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor. The victim asked the judge to reconsider Brown's charge. Investigators still don't know who the gun belongs to. There is a person in this courtroom that was shot by this individual, so um, there's there's definitely a uh, kind of a, um, a dereliction there from the standpoint of, of understanding when you have a firearm in your hand, whether it's a plastic gun or whatever it is, if you don't know anything about it, you better not be pulling the trigger. <sighs> yeah. Um, of course, nobody confesses where the gun came from. That would be silly because then that's somebody's fault. Um, but still, like, it's a gun. Man, why are you taking a gun to a haunted house? Anyway, that was from WMBF News. Cuvera Partners, the company that show that owns the museum, said in a statement to WMBF, we have no comments about the shooting incident that took place in our outbreak zombie attraction. Our attractions, like many others in the beautiful Myrtle Beach, are here for visitors to enjoy and make fun memories. That is what drives us. It will continue to be our pleasure to welcome our guests as we heal from this unfortunate experience. I think that's reckless use of the word heal. Are we, excuse me? Um, you're not healing from it, Mr. CEO man. The guy with the hole, though, the guy with the new hole in his shoulder, uh, that person's healing, right? So, um, I love how the policeman's like, well, it's, it's kind of like a dereliction of, like, kind of? That's weird. Yeah. Are you okay with? Are you okay with Taco Bell? Oh, yes. I Taco yes. Bell, man. If I uh, if I partook in the the, the wacky tobacco on 420, which was on on a week work day, so I did not, but that would have been the first choice, you know to enjoy with the weed would have been Taco Bell. It's like the best fast food for when you just feel gross. If that makes sense. You just want to eat greasy food that tastes amazing. Taco Bell hits a certain nerve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it. Like they used to have the cheesy chili burrito. Oh yeah. 10 out of 10. You know, it was kind of like one of those ones where you're like, I think there's meat in it. <laughs> Air quote meat. But you don't know. But it was so good. I don't think they have it anymore because I drove probably 35 minutes <laughs> just a few weeks ago. I did it a couple times actually. And then I to go <laughs> to Taco Bell. I would come with you. Much like I know, much like the time that I went to, I, I was in Sylvan Lake and I drove all the way to Red Deer to go to Arby's. So that was the thing. Anyway, um, are you okay with Taco Bell? You know what you're going to get with Taco Bell. Huh. Uh, cheesy gordita crunch can hit you just right, but there's something special about that 
Mexican pizza that they have. A giant two-layer tortilla with beef, cheese, tomatoes, all the fixings you would need for a Mexican pizza, but it was removed in 2020. Just to add all the terrible things about 2020, no more Taco Bell pizza. But at Coachella, pop star Doja Cat started screaming that she had brought it back. It's true. Doja Cat taking credit there. Taco Bell is bringing back the Mexican pizza. They tweeted out that clip there of Doja Cat making the announcement during her Coachella set. Taco Bell's Twitter name has also been changed to You Brought Back the Mexican Pizza. People have been demanding the return of the fan favorite menu item since Taco Bell axed it from their menu back in November of 2020. An online petition garnered over 200,000 signatures. The Mexican Pizza will return to Taco Bell permanently beginning May 19th. So there you go. Uh, lots of people excited online about the return of the Mexican pizza. Yeah. I, I kind of wonder if Taco Bell had already been planning this for the last two years. Yeah. But, uh, I think Yum Brands doesn't do anything by accident. Uh, amazing, first of all. Can we just all agree? Thank you. Yes. Yes. 10 out of 10. <sighs> uh, Mexican pizza is especially popular with vegetarians for how easy it is to customize into meatless Mm-hmm. Fun fact, the person who started a change.org petition calling for Taco Bell to bring back the uh, pizza was a vegetarian. It was originally taken off the menu as Taco Bell tried to push for sustainable packaging. They're now asking customers to recycle. Yeah. Trust me, when you eat Taco Bell, you recycle. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not going to argue with that one. All right. Especially the Mexican <laughs> pizza. Oh, uh, but it's so good though. Yeah, it's amazing, and it's shareable. It's a good size portion. Um, it's it's good. It's really good. Yeah, I just went, wish there were more. I've gone to some incredible um, like Mexican burrito type restaurants, and um, those are good burritos. Like they're amazing burritos. Like some of them are so mm-hmm. filled with fresh vegetables, and like it's so good. But there's just something about it that's in yeah. the in the burrito. Oh, so good! It's, it's the fact that it's it's cheese, but it's not it's not really cheese. You know, it's the perfect consistency just for melted fast food. So it just the texture is just so good, and the uh, it's always hot and like it's uh, it's like steamy. You know what I mean? Like you take a bite and mm. it's kind of like you're biting into a pillow. <laughs> it's like nice and soft. <laughs> I don't know. It's like soft. And you could eat it, or you could just rest your head on it. That's what that's what a Taco Bell burrito is like. So, wow, yeah. hey, hey, Brennan. <laughs> yeah, what happened last night on the shift? Oh, I don't know. Ryan told us how he bites into the pillow. <laughs> wow. Did I did I say wow. pillow? I meant pizza pocket. Pizza pocket. <laughs> <laughs> that's wild. Let's, uh, let's do one more quick one here. Are you okay with? mayors yeah like yeah. The, the person the the guy or the gal who runs the runs the city kind of mayors yeah or in the case of this story neither a gal or a man oh hell michigan is a place wow we're not saying michigan is hell although in the winter well cold there literally is a town called hell i live in hell and the people of hell elected a mayor for just one day a black cat named jinx in hell located about 60 miles west of detroit people can request to serve as mayor of the town before being impeached at the end of the day the experience costs 100 bucks m live reports 
And Jinxes paid for that honor. I think it's owner. Owner. Yeah. Oh, really? I think it's worth it. Yep. Really? Hit it. All right. Hit it. That's a typo. There we go. Thank you. And Jinx's owner paid for that honor. Jinx is popular on Instagram, TikTok, and other social media platforms because she has enormous eyeballs. <laughs> oh, the world we live in is messed up. Uh, but hell is not alone in this. Minnesota loves to elect pets for their mayors, too. It's one thing to elect a dog as mayor. It's another to elect a dog as mayor three times. But that's what happened to Duke. Now, Richard, you were a candidate uh, along with uh, Duke. And uh, how, how do you feel after that election? Well, it was really depressing at first, but I'm getting over it real good. The nine-year-old Great Pyrenees was first elected as a write-in candidate in a small town in Minnesota in 2014, and he beat the human competition. Duke's honorary position in a town of about a 1,000 people isn't completely unprecedented in the state. Another small Minnesota town has had some unconventional mayors as well, multiple preschool-aged children. Duke's owner told WDAY all the votes this year were in Duke's camp except for one person who voted for Duke's girlfriend, Lassie. <laughs> uh, yeah, so hey, that's news in the world. Uh, that's mm-hmm. W-D-A-Y, W-Day News. Um, yeah, all right. It, my, my dog, feel free, could be mayor for a day. Um, there would be lots of drool and cuddles mm-hmm. and... Um, She's she likes to chase the ball around. In some places, that could be more work than a mayor does. Uh, some places, the mayor and council, I don't know what they do. <laughs> Nothing seems to get done. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Oh well. This is the Shift Podcast. One of the stories that we've heard coming out of Ukraine has been the conversation around Chernobyl. Now, Chernobyl is an old story. It's a story that we might not remember quite right. There's lots that's changed around Chernobyl. There's a lot of things that haven't changed around Chernobyl that are the same. Like we've heard about, uh, I think they called it the Red Forest, uh, extremely radioactive forests and stuff like that. So uh, Lydia Zablotska is joining us here uh, from UCSF, which is San Francisco. And... Um, MD, PhD, Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. It's a very long and intelligent uh, business card, Lydia. Thanks for taking some time to share it with us. I appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. So, Chernobyl, when all of this stuff started to unfold in Ukraine, I'm not asking for uh, political. You can you share your heart as you feel fit. But when you saw these things start to unfold, it must have made you go, uh-oh, with the storyline around Chernobyl and uh, Russian troops taking control of it originally and being there and being around it all and then all of a sudden leaving. Uh, Inside your work, that must have been incredibly concerning to start. Absolutely. Um, In fact, I am on record saying that that's absolutely crazy on my interview on uh, CNN, saying that it's absolutely crazy, irresponsible, for people who don't know anything about Chernobyl to go in there, try to display the people who are professionals trying to maintain this very dangerous site and also going and digging trenches everywhere they feel like. It is unconscionable. They are endangering their own life, their own health. 
but they're also doing, you know, they could potentially harm people around them, people living in the neighborhoods. Um, I don't know how many of these trenches they dug in the Red Forest, but it is an extremely dangerous area. This is not, you know, you probably have heard or your listeners probably have heard about the tourist trips to Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. So you could pay mm -hmm. exorbitant amount of money and go for a day. You will not go to Red Forest. So mm -hmm. this is an area which is protected, prescribed. No one could go there. And I'm just honestly amazed at the incompetence of the Russian army that they would let their soldiers even go there, let alone, you know, dig trenches. Yeah, well, it seems to be this lack of compassion or something that's there, too. And I, I guess that it's a, a, a very political statement of mine. It's just that, you know, when we talk about the Ukraine, I'm only imagining. This is my perception of, of what goes on based on the politics of the politicians and what we've seen. I can't imagine the Ukrainian army allowing their soldiers to go into a place without the proper protective equipment because they wanted they seem to want to have a strong military filled with people who are healthy and smart and and are professionals like this is their job they want people to succeed at their job on the other side of it the russians seem to be like yep just go get it done the less you know the better um and uh and get in there and and, and do what we tell you to do and it's such a different approach mindset um, philosophy, I suppose, on how two different governments run. And I can't think of a more clear description of that than this particular story about Russian troops just walking around willy-nilly, if you will, without protective equipment on, just with their boots, walking through the dirt and tracking it everywhere. Yeah, and what was the point of digging those trenches? Who is going to fight? This is, a, you know, for your listeners, this is the... Um, land that is extremely contaminated by radioactive elements that that area is excluded for a reason. It's contaminated with cesium. So cesium takes a very long time to disintegrate. So no one will be living or going on that territory for hundreds of years, maybe even thousands. So mm. this is completely excluded area. You shouldn't even step there let alone disturb the ground and dig it. So incompetence of the military and just doing something without any plan or forethought is really astounding. And, is it? Yeah. No, go ahead, finish your thought. I just had a, a follow-up. And, and sort of related to that is that I've also seen on the news um, a piece about Russian soldiers when they departed. They stole computer and other equipment from the Chernobyl from the room, you know, so this equipment is necessary to protect everyone, not just Ukrainian mm -hmm. population, but the world from any disaster happening at the nuclear power plant. And they stole equipment and computers. Yeah, like we don't even know what they stole. They might have stole the fire alarm for that matter. Like they don't know, right? They they just took it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that may, that's very, very scary. My follow-up question um, that I was, I didn't mean to, to step on you there was, you know, is the Red Forest, I guess is what I from, I mean, I'm not a scientist like you are, right? I don't study these things. But would the Red Forest be the radioactively the dirtiest place on Earth? Or are there, is it pretty close? It's pretty close, yes. Really? Hey. From the natural environment, it is. And um, there is a map of contamination of the exclusion zone. People who work there are mostly scientists. And they know they will never go there. It's all, they wear dosimeters if they go in the zone. So this is a highly, highly controlled area. 
And for many years, no one was just going and exploring it. Mm-hmm. It, 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 but, unconscionable and but not even walking around i mean they literally dug holes that's the thing that's mind-blowing to me um i mean it's not like they just had it on their boots just from walking you know or brushing up against a tree <laughs> um it's not like that I, I think of um like poison ivy and you hear those things that are you know poison oak and those things people go in the trees and they touch a plant and then they get a rash from the plant we're not talking about just touching that we're talking about literally digging a hole in the ground um it seems crazy to me and Okay, maybe tap into the the radiation contamination part of of your profession. Um, These people had, you know, mud on their boots and now they've left and you don't know where they've gone. Is that a concern too? It's a concern. I I don't know what's in that mud, you know. The the very sort of unique thing about radiation is that someone who is exposed unless it's a really, really large dose and they have acute radiation syndrome, which only about 130 people had in connection to Chernobyl. Oh, that's like the obviously sick, something's gone wrong. Yes. Like, okay, like crisis level stuff. So these were the firefighters who were handling the explosion at the reactor. There were 130 Mm -hmm. of those and many of them died, many of them survived. But this is like really huge dose. The other hundreds of thousands of people who were exposed to Chernobyl, there is no way to know that you were exposed. You cannot smell, you cannot see, you cannot taste it. The only way of knowing it is that, and even not at the individual level, many years later, people who were exposed are several times more likely to develop cancer. Right. But... Even in people who were exposed and they have cancer, we still cannot prove that it is due to Chernobyl at the individual level. That cancer looks exactly the same way that cancer that developed from genetic mutation, from exposure to benzene or anything else. Right. So that's why it's so complicated. And the people, Russian soldiers who were exposed, they would never know. They could never prove. Right. But yeah, so there's no recourse either. Um, exactly. Um Oh, like ticking time bomb, uh, landmine. There's all kinds of other metaphors you could put in uh, to what now these individuals have been exposed to down the road. Uh, regardless, it it's not positive, I suppose. That's probably the way to say it. it. It probably is harmful. We would never know. Wow. They could contaminate. You know, there are studies that shown that people who, men who worked at nuclear power plants and take home their dusty clothes, and women were cleaning them up, women got exposed, and there were some studies of their children affected by that. That's so scary. So I hope that's not the case, but there are studies showing some connections. So you have to be very, very careful. And there is for a reason that billions of dollars have been spent to build the sarcophagus and mm-hmm. protect this nuclear power plant and the waste uh, from, the, from the plant and wastewater and other dangerous materials. I suppose what we see of Chernobyl are the photographers that go, and they put together quite beautiful, daunting, some of them dark, um, very vacant, empty, sad photo uh, presentations of what Chernobyl looks like. Um, But it is quite beautiful the way they always put it together, and so that's the way that most of us see it. Can you help me understand, like, just the impact of that in general, you know, with your expertise um, and me and feel free to, you know, use language that you would use. But because of your study around Chernobyl uh, about, you know, 
occupational exposure, radiation exposure, all those things. It, it isn't a, it's not a pretty art exhibit, is it? Absolutely not. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I invited one of our collaborators from Ukraine who worked with us on the study of cleanup workers and uh, leukemia to come and speak to the faculty at my university to talk about the situation in Chernobyl. And what he said really stayed with me. He said that after the Chernobyl explosion, the Soviet Union was able to marshal these massive, as he said, thousands of buses to move the whole city of Pripyat out of the contaminated area. So there were about 75,000 people that were moved in the span of three or four days. He's saying that right now, if the sarcophagus is good, it's protecting, but if the bomb actually fell and the explosion happened again, of course, it's sarcophagus cannot protect from the bombing directed hit. No country will be able to marshal these buses and moving people. So the disaster after the Chernobyl would be even worse than it was in 1986. Hmm. And, 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 and yeah, so I, I sort of thought about it. We asked follow-up questions saying like, but don't we know more about radiation? Can He said, no. Some, you know, right now it would be, it could be even worse than it was in 1986. Yeah, because the war stops help from getting there. In the case of when it happened, they had unlimited access to get in there to help. So it basically, if, if now it looks like in the case of Chernobyl, anyway, there's some reactors that are in the east that, you know, are still um, of concern for this their status. But when it comes to Chernobyl, if this had gone wrong, or if Russia decides to try to go back there, um, if a bomb goes through the top of the sarcophagus, like you described, it's basically that for 40 years, almost 35 years, I guess, that they basically put the meltdown, they put the tragedy, they put the uh, all of it, they basically put it on hold. And if someone punctures that envelope, it, it just like continues the disaster that was so long ago. And yes, and it could also be worse because modern bombs, as you have seen, when they explode, everything, you know, the particles go up in the air and the wind blows them into thousands of kilometers. This is how originally the Chernobyl radiation was spotted in Finland and Norway, right? Right. That, so if the bomb explodes, it's even a bigger explosion. And so these contaminated particles and radiation will be blown even into higher air the regions of the stratosphere. And they will... How do you not, how do you not watch the news all day, every day? <laughs> Just this would be panicked. I would be like this. No one can see it because we're on a video call. They can't see us on the radio. But I'd be like this all day. Just like going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> like this could go so bad. The technology around nuclear though... Um, that part has improved, hasn't it? At least the technology, the containment, the the cooling, all of the elements around using nuclear as power is uh, it's smaller, uh, r- remarkably different today than it was back then. So we, correct me if I'm wrong, we've seen some massive leaps forward in the use of nuclear, just these old ones, the consequences really haven't changed. We're stuck with it. Yes, the safety profile and design has significantly improved. And many countries chose um, to prioritize nuclear energy and use it. So Canada, I know, is one of them and a very significant portion of 
energy comes from that industry. And, and France is using more than 80% of energy coming from nuclear, while other countries decided not to do it. So Germany completely eliminated nuclear and um, coming from uh, nuclear uh, power plants. So it's, it's individual choice of different countries, even though the technology is getting safer. Some people are still understandably afraid of it. But the common thread is that when people design these nuclear power plants, they don't put safeguards against war and bombing. They think about, you know, hurricane, they think about uh, maybe typhoon if it's on the coast, you know, or something like that. But no one is thinking about the drag bomb hit. You can't protect from that. Yeah, and it almost makes you wonder. And this, I don't mean to sound dark. God, I don't mean to sound dark with this, but who needs, who needs nuclear weapons in today's world when there's no defense system to protect the nuclear power plants, right? You almost don't need nuclear bombs anymore. You can just go put a normal bomb on a bad place and, and here it goes. It's, it's so incredibly scary. What do we need to know, Lydia? What are we missing? I mean, we, we know Three Mile Island. We know Chernobyl. We know these um, in wildly inflammatory stories that we saw from so long ago. We remember the grainy airplane footage from above, right? That's that's what we saw on TV and on the news. We haven't really learned much about it since other than those artistic style uh, pieces that are put together. Um, what do we need to know about this that we're missing? I mean, that that you and your profession in around contamination and all these things, what, uh, what are we missing as the normal people that we should pay closer attention to? That's a very interesting question. I've been many times to Hiroshima, to the Peace Museum, and seen, you know, footage and pictures, and um, a lot of Russian scientists go there and see it and understand it. I do not understand how someone, a person supposedly elected to be president of the big country, could say that someone upset us, and so we are putting the nuclear bombs on notice, on alert. The bombs in Hiroshima wiped out 200,000 people in an instant. And how can you talk about this? And the current bombs are much more powerful than the bombs were in Hiroshima in 1945. So I don't know how this is not penetrating. This is just this language that is being, you know, this bandied around like, oh, we're putting it on alert because we just don't like what you're saying. How did we come to this? Like, where did do these people, where did they miss something in their lives, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's grounding, isn't it? It's grounding that it, um, A, that it's even an option. It's grounding that it's, um, that you're right, that people would go there, that the state of humanity, when we really truly look at the state of humanity, I think that mirrors in front of us today. Like, it truly is in front of us. I don't think it's been in front of us so much. Um, in the last 20 years, I mean, there are little pieces of dreadful humanity around the world that are ugly, but for the most part, this is the largest look in the mirror that we've seen in, you know, 70 years, 60 years, maybe go back to sort of napalm Korea, Vietnam type stuff. But, you know, this is a a harsh look in the mirror and you're right. it, It does bring that up of, of we haven't come very far. The technology of nuclear has come far. We as humans, we haven't come very far. It's very sad. It is very sad. You know, I honestly believe that we learned a lesson 
we know what we are talking about. This is just nuclear deterrence, but no one seriously would ever even think about it. But the events of the last months and a half are just really sobering. You know, the first thing that Russian troops did when they entered nuclear power plants in Ukraine, not just Chernobyl, but Zaporizhia and others, they switched off radiation dosimeters that are connecting and reporting the data back to the international organizations. Why? Why would you do that? So yeah, and who tells you to do that? Yeah, and, and that's crazy. So some some of these things and the rhetoric that you hear, I I just don't understand where it's coming from. And and I know that Russian scientists are hundreds and thousands of them who have been working with us on international committees, authored the articles. They know about the effects of Chernobyl. I just don't understand. We don't hear a word from them. Huh. It's a strange time. And the insight inside uh, Chernobyl with your experience, plus uh, um, all of this in a row, I do have to ask one playful question because this is curious for me. So with you and your colleagues, why do I get the feeling that you never really use a microwave at the office? You know, like, I feel like that's one of the things that you guys are like, nope, we don't need a microwave in here. <laughs> and in fact, we do. Oh, there There's you go. Good. A different type of radiation. Like, <laughs> it's non-ionizing, so you could never. It's very different from ionizing radiation that people are afraid. So, oh, that's beautiful. I love it. I love that. That's so good. Thank you so much for being here, Lydia. I hope we can. Uh, I'm going to ask flat out. I, I, will you let us tap into your brain about this again? Because I think there's so much more for us to learn as we watch things unfold in um, in Ukraine, in Russia. And inside the, the the green conversation about using nuclear as an alternative power versus coal and all those things, I mean, I think there's an awful lot that we, like I said, we have these memories from 40 years ago about what it is. And there's an awful lot that we as people have, when we choose who we vote for and the projects we want to get behind and all those things, we have a lot that we need to learn here to be more educated in it. So I would like to, I'd like to learn more from you. If that's okay. Thank you. And I, I want to say that I'm very grateful to the people of Canada. They allowed me. So my dissertation was about Canadian nuclear workers. So I've been working with Canadian collaborators for many, many years. And I'm always very, you know, I enjoy working with my colleagues in Canada. Us Canadians are fun, aren't we? <laughs> yes. I've had quite a few very eventful and very happy nights. Oh, beautiful. I love it. Um, Lydia Zablotska, MD, PhD, University of California, San Francisco. Uh, thank you very much for that one. And a long history of work uh, inside around um, Chernobyl specifically and uh, radiation, contamination, exposure, all those things. Thanks so much for being here, Lydia. It's very insightful. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. This is the Shift Podcast. Very excited to introduce to you William Hazelgrove joining us here on the Shift. William, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, thanks for being here on the program. I really appreciate that. Um, you're, uh, I'm assuming you're still in Chicago because that's what my research says that you are. Is that where yes. you're, you're hanging out today? Yeah? Yes. Absolutely. How is spring in Chicago for you? Uh, yeah, actually, it got a little better the last two days. Uh, yesterday was 80. Today was. It was about 60, and before that, it was like 20. So better, oh, better. Wow. You might as well live in Canada with those temperatures, buddy. Yeah, right? Hey, no kidding. Um, you have written an awful lot of things uh, over the course of your days. Uh, you're a member mm-hmm. of the Authors Guild and all that stuff. What in the right. world brought you to the Titanic? 
Uh, you know, like a lot of people uh, saw the movie and had a real a fascination with it before that. But, you know, when I thought about writing about it, I thought, well, you know, it's been so covered. What is it that I could bring to the table that maybe people don't know? My books, is, the thing I try and do is uncover something that you might not know. Um, which is sort of the hallmark of narrative nonfiction. And uh, with Titanic, I thought, well, um, you know, let me try the wireless aspect of it. And then as I started to go into that, I started to uncover a whole new story that really hadn't been brought to light. And, um, and you know, when I write books, I wrote a book called Madam President, The Secret Presidency of Edith Wilson, uh, who ran the United States from 1919 to 1921. And, you know, it's not that I, I come up with the... Uh, you know, manuscript in the trunk or find some smoking gun uh, document. Really what I do is I just look at it in plain sight and say, no, that doesn't make sense. I think this is what happened. And it really with Titanic, that's the same thing that happened. One of those, um, this doesn't add up kind of moments when you read this article or you read that timeline. Is that what you're doing? You're, you're a bit of a Sherlock Holmes when you do it? Yeah, well, I mean, and, and with Titanic, you literally had two ships, uh, the California and the Mount Temple, that were within, one was within five miles, one was within 10 miles. And, uh, you know, literally the passengers on, this is hard for people to believe who've seen the movie, um, could see uh, the Californian. And it got to the point where Captain Smith told the passengers in the 20 boats of Titanic, See that light, see that light, row toward that light. And second officer Lightoller said the same thing. Jack Thayer, 17 year old, his mother, Lawrence Beasley, schoolmaster, they all wrote about it in their books and countless testimonials in newspapers. And also, the Titanic had a semaphore light out to signal uh, the ship, which was the California. Now, Captain Lord uh, is this imperious captain, and he decided not to go into that ice field. Um, he didn't want to risk his ship. And so when his officers said, you know, there's this ship right in front of us, and we think it's Titanic, he said, no, no, that, that, that's a Norwegian fishing trawler. And then it gets worse because Titanic started shooting off rockets. So they called Captain Lord up from his berth and said, sir, you know, there's rockets going off. And he said, well, what color are they? Which it matters not at all. Rockets at sea mean only one thing, come immediately. And they said, well, they're white rockets. And he said, well, let me know if anything changes. And so literally the officers aboard California, 10 miles away from Titanic, which is sinking, watch that ship sink with rockets going off. People are rowing toward the Californian, which never, ever comes into that ice field. Wow. I, how could you... I have so many questions, but I don't know how anybody could, how could you live with yourself after the fact? So the sun rises the next day. I'm assuming that you find lifeboats scattered about and you, yeah. uh, you realize, oh, by the way, that was not a fishing trawler that just went down. Also, can we just agree that uh, I get it? There's an ice field, but does it matter when there's a ship sinking? Like who, right. where it's from, right? Well, exactly. And you know, on the other side of the ice field, it gets worse. Uh, the ship called the Mount Temple, a guy named Captain Moore. Now, Captain Moore was the first one to receive the CQD, which is come quick distress from the wireless operators. And, and by the way, Titanic's wireless set was the most powerful on a ship at the time. It would go 500 miles during the day, 2,000 miles a night. So literally it would bounce into Manhattan, and there's all these cases of people picking it up. But so Captain Moore gets it, turns his ship around, heads directly for Titanic, 
Now, he told his passengers, he said, you're forbidden to go up top, you know, stay below. Well, some of them had a few drinks. Uh, they sneak up top and they see this ship sinking, shooting off rockets about five miles away. And the crew sees it. And they say, say to Captain Moore, hey, we have to go in. And Captain Moore says, no, no, I'm not going to risk my ship. So, so it, you know, these two ships that are on opposite sides of the ice field. And by the way, Titanic didn't just hit an iceberg. It hit an ice field. So it's surrounded by growlers, which are small birds. And these, these two captains, Captain Moore, Captain Lord, are both saying, you know, I'm not going to risk my ship and literally sit on the edge of the ice field while this ship sinks. And then, like you say, in the morning, of course, we all know Carpathia does make it there. Carpathia is Captain Rostrum. He zigzags around all these icebergs. He does get there at 3.30 a.m. and rescue the 700 people. And, of course, by the time these ships, you know, confirm through the wireless that this was Titanic, it's too late. Now, Captain Lord goes to New York, and he just wants to turn around and get out of there. But his crew and his passengers talk to all the press, and they pull him into the American investigation. And he tries to talk his way out of it, but they basically nail him to the wall and say he's guilty of not coming to the aid of Titanic and saving countless lives. He's stripped of his command. And the same thing happens in the British Inquiry. They just nail him to the wall. And, and you know, Captain Moore, he sort of sneaks out of it, but five books come out about the Mount Temple later. And how do we know this is true? Because, you know, there's a lot of people. When my book came out in Britain, I got a lot of emails from people saying, oh, this is crazy. But here's how we know it's true. All these people, I'm talking about the crew, the passengers, and, and by the way, they talked to lots of newspapers in Canada because uh, a lot of more Canadian, uh, you know, citizens. And all these accounts line up. So they couldn't coordinate all their stories, all these hundreds of people. And, and this is how you know it's true. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. So your book is the uh, 160 Minutes, The Race to Save the RMS Titanic. Have you watched the movie since you've completed the book, or is it just you don't need to – is this going to make you too frustrated at this point? No, you know, I, I, I have – actually, I have watched the movie since I completed the book, and it's a great movie. You know, the, there's a lot of mythology with Titanic, and there's a lot of mythology in the movie. I mean, there's a guy named Walter Ward, and he in the 1950s, wrote a book called A Night to Remember based on the survivors' interviews. He he had the luxury of interviewing the remaining survivors. It's only a little 112-page book, no footnotes. But here's the thing. It set the floor for every Titanic history book to follow. So so the mythology was started with Lord's book. One, his book was wrong. It's sort of where he set his camera. It's sort of a voyeuristic you were there. So, right. so every book to follow would sort of amplify on Lord's book. So, you know, when I came along, and again, you know, the movie Titanic's great. Um, you know, James Cameron did a great job. And, but, you know, he sort of canonized what was around, which is basically Walter Lord's book. When I came around and, and you know, read the trials, the transcripts and everything else, I, my thought was, wow, all these people could have been saved. Now, here's another thing that's really a shameful moment of Titanic. There's 20 lifeboats, and they're full of mostly the first class. And Titanic sinks, and 1,500 people end up in the water. Now, they aren't drowning. They're freezing to death because it's about 18 degrees. Okay. The people in the lifeboats, the lifeboats are substantial, are half full. They only loaded them half full. Why? Because their crew was inexperienced. 
And so there's 700 people in the lifeboat that's going to hold 1175. So there's room for 475 more people. And some people say, we have to go in and get these people. And other people say, no, we're going to get swamped. And some of these people committed suicide because they couldn't get this, this noise out of their head of sitting there, you know, and listen to all these people freeze to death. But that's really one of the, the, you know, glossed over most shameful moments of Titanic where, you know, to have a great tragedy, you have to have people act heroically and there has to be uh, foreordained that they will, they are doomed. The truth is Titanic is they weren't doomed. They're surrounded by ships. That's why my book's called 160 Minutes, The Race to Rescue Titanic. People were racing to rescue them. That's it's, it's so fascinating when you when we look at the Titanic and you look at the the sort of ripple effect of how it started and wh- where it goes to from there, right? I mean, if you look at just the aristocrats alone in in and around England, um, and those aristocratic families that could afford to be on the Titanic, I mean, the amount of family lines and um, you know. Uh, you know, the husbands and wives and families and parents and aunts and uncles and whatever that were on the boat because they were rich and it was the first sailing and this was the big rich part, rich people's party. I mean, the amount of, um, interruption in family lines alone, just in aristocrats, um, was quite substantial that happened because of that boat. And then that doesn't include, of course, nobody ever paid attention to the poor folks. Um, but the, all of those family lines that ended of those people that were migrating and trying to make their way to Canada and North America and to create a new life there. So it is quite a remarkable interruption that, uh, where would we be today if, you know, more of these people had made it. I mean, the world as we know, and I realize I'm, I'm creating all kinds of fantasy here, but really, I think it's safe to say the world as we know it could be substantially different because of the massive impact it had on all kinds. I mean, because back then your family bloodlines and who was going to take over the family business and all those things was the oldest son and all those pieces. I mean, it was a hundred years ago, right? So like this is these, these things were real then. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, it's Astros, Vanderbilt, Guggenheim. These, you know, these were the equivalent of billionaires then were all on the ship, and all the, the majority of the men were lost. And, of course, then you talk about the steerage, which is, you know, the 1,500 people who got to the top of Titanic and realized the boats were all gone. And, you know, another thing that just doesn't make it into the movie is that, uh, you know, 12 people were shot aboard Titanic. Um, because pandemonium broke out when these people realized that they couldn't they couldn't get onto these boats. Um, and, you know, how did people find out? Well, the stewards told the first class, the third class, who many didn't speak English, or maybe somebody yelled down the hallway, and then they had to find their way up to the top of the ship, which this was a, an immense ship. And, you know, a lot of people just couldn't find their way up. And tight. In the movie, of course, we see the famous where gates were locked, and gates were locked. This is at a time when classes were clearly divided and they were not expected to mix. You know, this is sort of foreign to us now, but then it was part of the job of the White Star Line to keep these classes separate and to make sure that a first-class person did not stumble onto a third-class person. And a lot of the third-class people made up to the top. They, some of them got, uh, came up to the dining room. They were just awestruck by the opulence of the, the first class dining room. And of course, as as you said, you know, these these bloodlines, these families were just decimated 
from this this massive tragedy and and shame and it changed the destiny of the the uber rich and and really the these first generation of of people coming and that's one reason people are so fascinated with titanic it's the end of the gilded age right 1865 to 1912 you know jack thayer who was 19 said you know before titanic Life had a sort of Grecian quality to it. The headlines weren't big. You know, most people didn't have a car. Planes weren't instruments of destruction. After Titanic, all the all the carnage of the 20th century came in. So it's a clear dividing line between the sort of Edwardian age and the 20th century as we know it. When the Chicago Tribune, your uh, local paper, uh, wrote this piece about you, and about this book, which for everybody who doesn't know, 160 minutes, the race to save the RMS Titanic. It says the Titanic, this is the headline, the Titanic and its tales of life and death won't go away. A new book by Chicago author, quote, breaks up the myths. So I do have to ask the inevitable question, William, what was the uh, most surprising of the myths that you found <laughs> that have sort of been that, because um, you talked about that other original writing that kind of became the telephone game of, right. of, titanic stories what's the biggest myth that you found that we probably uh, well, yeah, yeah here's one that probably will floor a lot of people okay um in the movie uh we see the band playing on all right there was a woman in 1964 who gave an interview to a newspaper and she said you know there was so much that's not true and they said like well she said first of all the band never played and they said well, what do you mean she said well it was freezing it was bitterly cold and it was this night uh, their strings were a snap. Second of all, the ship was at such an angle, they would have fell down and just slid right down the ship. But third of all, and this is most important, Titanic was going 24 knots when it slammed into that iceberg, which was 500 billion tons. Okay. That meant all 24 of our boilers were full, full of steam. When they stopped, all that steam had to go somewhere. So they blew it off through the funnels. You couldn't hear yourself think. She, she, they had to use sign language with their hands when they were loading the boats. This, this was just a shriek of like a thousand locomotives blowing off steam. She said, there's no way anybody could hear a band playing. And you know, I did a benefit in Chicago Yacht Club for Titanic. And they had a quartet there, the same kind that was on Titanic. And I had to be right next to them to hear them. So what do I think? I think there was a band. I think they may have played somewhere on that ship. And I think a few people heard them, but for the most part, no, the band did not play on. That's amazing to uh, even the boilers. I would never have thought about the boilers in that ice cold water. And not only that, because we don't see that in the movie, of course, um, right. those hot boilers going underwater themselves would cause, you know, either oh, explosions, yeah. right? Because of the pressure and the massive uh, quick cooling oh, yeah. and all yeah. kinds of things that could happen just from that fact alone. Oh, yeah. No. They, and when they did, they did blow up and they created immense suction. And second off, there are light, light taller talks of being sucked down into the funnels. And then when the boilers blew up, it threw them out like a cannon, you know. Um, and, and, and that's the thing. I mean, here, here's another thing. Uh, you know, we haven't talked much about wireless, but that was the Internet of their time. And pe most people didn't understand it. And Captain Smith regarded wireless technology as a gadget. You know, just a plaything of the rich. So somebody could, you know, send a message to New York. He got 10 ice warnings saying, you know what? There's icebergs dead ahead. Bruce Ismay's on board. They have that thing just stoked up, going as fast as they can when they hit that iceberg. 
And they weren't going to, and the two operators, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride, are two toys who don't even work for White Star. They work for Marconi. And so he pretty much disregards all those ice warnings. And of course, after he hits the iceberg, he has to go down to that wireless room and say to them, you know, send out the CQD. And so they do. They just keep sending this out, ending up over and over, SOS CQD. And these signals bounce all over the place and ships turn around and come toward them. These signals bounce all the way into New York, where there's a guy named David Sarnoff who started RCA one day, 20-something, sitting on top of Wanamaker's department store in Manhattan, and runs and tells this little rag of a newspaper called the New York Times, which gets the scoop of the century. So, you know, this technology is the only reason you and I are sitting here talking about Titanic, because without it, it would have just sunk, and people would have been like, you know, aliens took it or whatever. But it's the only reason 700 people were saved, which, in fact, you think of Titanic as just this huge disaster. But the truth is, 700 people were saved because of this incredible new technology that most people didn't even understand. Oh, that's so amazing. Um, <laughs> just if you're just joining us, um, this is a story of of the Titanic. Uh, the, the book is 160 Minutes, The Race to Save the RMS Titanic. The author is William Elliott Hazelgrove. Uh, if you just tuned in, aliens didn't take the Titanic. Just want to make that clear. Um, uh, this is fascinating. Uh, William, I feel like we can talk about this further because I would like to get into the, um, into the wireless. I would like to get into sure. more of the technology of the day and all of those things down the road. So, uh, I have uh, open invitation. Please do come back and, and join us to dig into this more because it's fascinating for me. Thanks for being here. Oh, yeah. I'd love to do it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.